Okay, so now I'm going to elegantly segue to a sermon. Uh, let's hop into what God has for us this morning from the scriptures. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time today, welcome. Uh, if it's been a while uh, since you've been here, uh, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called Ears to Hear uh, and working our way through the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, if you weren't here two weeks ago when John introduced this series, uh, I highly recommend you go back and listen to the podcast or watch the message on YouTube. You know, like Revelation can feel uh, like double black diamond level scripture passages, and John did such a great job giving us a foundation to work from, uh, as well as just a perspective uh, on how to approach the book of Revelation as a whole. Uh, it's fascinating, super helpful. Uh, again, can't recommend it enough uh, that you go back and give that a watch or take a listen. Uh, two pieces from that message that I want to quickly remind us of this morning is that this is apocalyptic literature, which means that it's going to sit outside of our normal construct of time. It's going to talk about things present and things uh, in the future, and it's going to use a lot of symbolism and imagery to do so. That's why it can feel so hard to understand. Uh, fortunately, our passage for today doesn't have a ton of like beasts or dragons or scrolls or seals, uh, but Jesus does address the present and future for this church community. So just get ready for that. Uh, and, and the second, and I, I think the most important is that these words are not some disconnected critique or judgment from a God who is distant and far away. Uh, these are words of Jesus who is present in these places and these communities, and he's calling them to wholeness. Uh, at the beginning of John's vision in Revelation 1, uh, here's this voice from behind him telling him to write down what he sees and send it to the seven churches. And he turns around and he sees seven lampstands, which thankfully Jesus tells him that those represent the seven churches. Always helpful to have symbolism explained. Uh, and verse 13 tells us that among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Uh, now, a gold sash sounds awesome, but the phrase I want to draw us back to is among the lampstands. Jesus is with and present to his church. These words come a, from a place of presence and connection. And so as we spend time with these messages to these specific churches in specific moments in time and what Jesus has to say to them, and then as we hold that up and consider what Jesus might be saying to us, let's remember that these words come from a place of presence and connection because at times they're challenging and really direct. But they're a call for the church to be whole. Uh, because when you love something or someone, that's what you want for them. Uh, love is actually a real connecting point to what we're talking about today, uh, which is the call to suffering. Just keeping things light, you know, today. Uh, light and easy. Uh, it might not seem intuitive at first, but the call to suffering is timeless. It is timeless because it is an inevitability of love. Suffering is an inevitability of love. There is pain and loss, grief and mourning because love was there first. Uh, and not all suffering is connected to love. You know, sometimes we choose into it and sometimes we don't. 
There's a kind of suffering that comes because we live in a fallen and broken world. And then there's a kind of suffering that we run towards, that we choose. And sometimes we don't even recognize it as suffering or calling it that would never cross our minds because it's connected to what we want, what we value, and what we love. Just ask the mother of a newborn. We put our bodies through all sorts of stuff to achieve to achieve physical or athletic goals or to deliver a baby. Uh, we work hard and long hours for our education or to reach the job or field that we want. You know, we choose relationships, knowing none of them are perfect and for one reason or another will change over time. And see, in the same way uh, that suffering is an inevitability of love, what we choose to suffer for starts to reveal what we love. Which is why the letter to the church in Smyrna comes second. After the letter to the church in Ephesus and the call to love. And I want to hold that with us because the call Jesus makes is not to blindly suffer, but to love greatly. In a way that bears suffering as part of the cost. This is the invitation that's set before us in the greatest commandment, you know, to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls, with all of our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love greatly, which will lead us at times into moments of hardship and suffering when that love and the way that we live because of it puts us in tension with the values and practices and norms around us. Whether that's at our workplace or at school, uh, even in our families. As we look at the letter to the church at Smyrna, I, I want us to see how Jesus's words can help orient us to our own suffering and to let this letter press on us, too. This isn't just a call to bear up under suffering. This is a call to love in a way that may very well lead to it. As we get started this morning, would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your love. Uh, we thank you for your presence. Uh, we thank you for your goodness. Uh, as we dig into a topic that holds a lot, God, I pray we'd be held by you. Uh, that no matter what anyone in this room finds himself facing or experiencing this morning, God, that they would feel held by you. That they would know your presence. We love you. We thank you for your scriptures. Would you help us open ourselves up to what they call us to? Would it be your love that leads the way? We pray these things in and for your name. Amen. If you've got a copy of the scriptures with you, go ahead and turn or tap your way to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, as you're making your way there, I want to share a little bit more about what's going on in Smyrna because it'll help fill in some gaps for us as we read this letter. You know, Smyrna was about 35 miles up the coast from Ephesus, you know, the Half Moon Bay to our Santa Cruz. Uh, it was a port city right on the coast, and to many people, it was the most beautiful city in the Roman Empire. And that connection to Rome and the power, favor, and influence that came with it was an important part of Smyrna's heritage. Uh, you know how you're not supposed to have a favorite kid? 
Uh, well, if you're an empire, uh, I guess you can have a favorite city because Smyrna was like the golden child of the Roman Empire. Uh, something else that's important for us to know is that the Roman Empire was actually worshipped as a deity by its inhabitants, and Smyrna held an important role in that practice. Uh, there was a large statue of Dea Roma, which was Rome personified as a goddess that was built there in 195 BC, uh, and people would travel in and worship, uh, making offerings and sacrifices there. Uh, and in 25 AD, there was an empire-wide opportunity to have the honor of building a temple to the emperor Tiberius in your town, and guess who won it? Golden Child Smyrna. Uh, worshiping was the, the empire was a part of daily life in Smyrna, and patriotic loyalty became religious devotion. Observed through sacrifices and offerings to the empire and to the emperor, the expectation was that everyone would engage in this empire worship, and if you didn't, it did not go well for you. And at the epicenter of that tension were the Jews and the Christians who were living in Smyrna. And the Jewish people were exempted from their empire worship and sacrifice obligations. I don't really know how they worked that one out, but good on them. Uh, but it was kind of like having a doctor's note saying you don't have to participate, but everyone still thinks you're lame anyway. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, so, and this is so human nature uh, but what they did was start to stir up all sorts of problems for the Christians who were living there, who were also not doing the let's worship Rome and the emperor thing. Uh, they just didn't have a note. Uh, and, so, and they did it as a way of deflecting the suffering that came from being in tension with the values, practices, and norms around them, the public suspicion and ill treatment that they were experiencing. They deflected it onto to someone else and don't hassle them too much because we do it all the time. It's called blame shifting. It's that thing we do when we don't want to feel the displeasure, dislike, or disappointment of someone else and we make it someone or something's fault instead. It, it was hard to be a follower of Jesus in Smyrna. Their daily life was negatively impacted by their association with Jesus. I, I mean, just think about that for a minute. Their daily life was negatively impacted by their association with Jesus. This is the context that Jesus speaks these words into, you know, that John wrote down and then sent to be read aloud to the community gathered there. This is a letter to a suffering church where the public association with Jesus was costly. And as we take a look at it, you'll see that it breaks uh, from the form of the others. Uh, usually in these letters, there is an encouragement paired with a critique, uh, but there's no correction here. Uh, their suffering was not a natural result or consequence of their sin, but because that's a real thing that happens. Sometimes we're like, why, God, why is this happening to me? And he's like, you chose this. <laughs> you chose it. Uh, but that's not what's happening here. They weren't suffering from the consequences of their sin. They were suffering because of love that led to faithfulness, even when it was hard. As we read these words, may we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us, both about when we experience suffering of our own and about loving greatly, even when it leads to suffering. 
Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Uh, there's so much happening in just four verses. Uh, I want us to work back through this slowly, and, and as we do, uh, to imagine that we are part of the church in Smyrna, uh, that we are suffering because of our association with Jesus. Uh, you, you know, the whole of Scripture has so much to say about suffering. Uh, Jesus told his disciples that it was inevitable. Remember John 16, uh, In this world, you will have trouble. Uh, it's not if, it's when. It's inevitable in this world. You will have trouble. And, and look, we could spend all day going through different passages talking about suffering, uh, both the kind that we choose and the kind that we don't. Uh, there's so much richness in the scriptures about it. It's one of the things I love about the Bible is that it's rooted in real life. Uh, but for today, let's listen to what Jesus says to this community and how it might help us when the inevitable comes our way. Uh, one of the things about suffering is that it shrinks our world. Uh, have you ever like caught your pinky toe on the edge of the coffee table? It's like you can't see anything else or hear anything else. It's just white noise around you. Uh, suffering shrinks our world. It pulls our focus down really to be rooted in what's happening. It can become consuming. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, that you can't change, it feels powerless. We feel powerless, uh, probably because we are more than we care to admit. Uh, but let's come back to verse 8 and look at how this letter opens. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and who came to life again. Uh, see, right out of the gate, Jesus says, I, me, I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the one who died and who came back to life. The first thing that Jesus says to a suffering church is that I'm bigger than this moment. I always have been and I always will be. What an important thing to hold on to in the midst of suffering, that Jesus is bigger than this moment. And whatever the circumstances might be, he's the one who conquered even death. Suffering can remind us how powerless we really are, that we feel such a loss of control, and how beautiful is it that Jesus is saying, I've got this, I've got this. You feel out of control. You probably are. Like this moment is too big or too much for you, but I am bigger than this moment. I've got this. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, 
who died and who came to life again. In the greeting of the letter, Jesus reminds this church about how big, you know, how outside of time, how eternal he is, how powerful he is. And then look at the first words of verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know. I know. Remember, we said these aren't words of a God who's distant and far off, but who's there, who's present. Jesus is among the lampstands. I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know about the slander I know. The first two things that Jesus says to this suffering church are, I've got this. I'm bigger than this moment. And I know what you're going through. These are so simple. They're so powerful. God is bigger than this moment and knows what you're going through. May we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These two verses also tell us about how the church in Smyrna was suffering, about how they were suffering. Uh, they faced poverty, uh, likely from being seen as social outcasts for not doing all the sacrifice stuff and people not being willing to do business with them, boycotting them, essentially. Uh, and some commentators have also theorized that even in the loss of business and financial resources, this church still gave the resources they had to care for the orphans and widows and others in need, further increasing their poverty. What we choose to suffer for starts to reveal what we love. And they were also slandered and misunderstood at best, but mostly villainized and represented as untrue caricatures of who they really were. Uh, if you've ever been in that situation, it takes a mental and a psychological toll. It takes an emotional toll. Even if it's untrue and you know it's untrue, it still hurts. It still affects you and the relationships with people that you know and how people see you. The church in Smyrna suffered poverty and slander because of their association with Jesus. And there was more to come. Verse 10 starts with Jesus saying, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. So he's spoken to the moment, knows what they are experiencing now. And now he turns to the future and says, don't be afraid. Uh, and then he speaks plainly about two things that a lot of people, myself included, would be afraid of. People in this church would be put in prison. Uh, people in this church would be put to death. That was a reality for this community. If you've spent time with church history, you've probably heard the story of Polycarp, who was one of the well-known early Christian martyrs. Uh, he was a leader in this church, uh, and by everyone's best account, was likely there as this letter was read aloud. The prison and death were a reality for this community. And let's look at what Jesus says here at the end of verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Be faithful, 
even to the point of death, and I will give you life. Remember the greeting? I'm the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. See, Jesus has already conquered death, so you don't have to be afraid of it. He is king. He reigns and rules there too. Jesus' words here sound a lot like what he said to his disciples. You know, that thing about if you try to gain your life, then you'll lose it. But if you lay your life down for my sake and for the gospel, then you'll find it. Uh, The suffering that just happens to us because we live in a fallen and broken world can feel even harder as we wrestle with the question, why? What's the point? What's the meaning? There's such a drive to understand why we're going through what we're going through. Uh, But what Jesus is doing here is he's connecting the suffering of this church to the gospel narrative. The way to find life is to lay it down for his sake and for the sake of others. He's connecting their suffering to the gospel narrative, and he is setting their suffering, which can shrink our world down so small, keep us so fixated on what is right in front of us. Jesus sets their suffering against the backdrop of eternity. Even in death, you will find life that lasts forever. He continues that thread in verse 11. Take a look. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And whether that's the spiritual death that happens separately from physical death or the moment in time where God will judge for all eternity, the point is the same. Even in physical death, I will give you life. To this church who was already suffering and would suffer more in the days to come, Jesus says, I'm bigger than this moment. I'm the first and the last. I'm in control. He says, I know what you're going through. He spoke plainly to them about what lay ahead and connected their present and future to the gospel narrative and set it against the backdrop of eternity. You know, suffering can feel so disorienting, but man, this is some solid ground for when our lives get flipped upside down. If you're here this morning and you're in that place, hear Jesus say these words to you. I'm bigger than this moment. I know what you're going through. This is one small moment in time compared with eternity. As we start to hold Jesus' words in this letter up, you know, to see how they press on us, Uh, I wanted to bring us back to this progression of suffering for the church in Smyrna. Poverty, slander, prison, and death. Uh, Can you think of someone else in the scriptures who endured these same things? Uh, Someone who perhaps authored this letter who left the riches and glory of heaven and who did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges Justly, who was tried before Caiaphas, the high priest, and Pontius Pilate, and was beaten, tortured, and held captive until he was executed on the cross like a common criminal. And why did Jesus suffer all these things? 
because this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Suffering is an inevitability of love. It is evidence of loving greatly. So what does the suffering we choose say about what we love? There are things in our life that will just happen to us. There are things that are outside of our control. But what does the suffering we choose say about what we love or who we love? or how we love. And we often think becoming more like Jesus means becoming like uh, the kinder, more patient version of ourselves that prays a lot. Uh, what we see here is that it also means loving greatly in a way that bears suffering as part of the cost. You know, we live in a different world than the church in Smyrna did. Uh, most of us will never be put in jail, let alone killed for being a follower of Jesus. I, I think we take that for granted sometimes. Uh, I know I do. That has not been the case in the history of the church, and it's still not the case in different parts of the world today. Uh, so what does this mean for us? As Jake and the band come back to the stage to lead us in a time of worship and response... Uh, I want to just frame some thoughts and some questions for us to consider, to wrestle with, to listen to what God says through them. Uh, as I was prepping this week, I came across something that might help us see how this passage speaks to us here and now. Take a listen to these words. The slander the church in Smyrna experienced also surfaces the unique challenges of identifying as a Christian in the Bay Area. Many of us are not ashamed of our faith as much as we are by the associations that come with it. That's true. Jesus reminds us here that we should not consider ourselves victims of the reputation and connotations of being a Christian. Rather, we should embrace it. Slander is slander, after all, because it's not true. Our challenge should be to defy the stereotypes. Does the way that we love defy stereotypes? Does it lead us into uncomfortable places? And when it does, are we willing to say why? You know who wrote that quote, by the way? John Schneider. I just copied and pasted it from the creative guide that he made for this series. Uh, John also wrote this. Despite our love for comfort, suffering has been a part of the experience of the church and the world from the beginning. And if we are present, if we are embodying God's kingdom in the world, it will create discomfort and suffering. What does the suffering we choose say about what we love? 
about who we love, about how we love. What is the Spirit saying to you, saying to us this morning? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for our love, for your love that holds us. Uh, we also just cry out and say we need you. Uh, God, would you fill us not with a sense of duty or obligation or responsibility, but would you fill us with your love? Uh, a love that sustains us, a love that creates the context for great courage, a love that creates space for compassion, a willingness, a desire to step into spaces in the lives of people around us, in the world around us, in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces that you would lead us to as we seek to be your church here in this moment in time, in this place. Would you help us embody your kingdom, not just by what we say or what we sing, but by how we live? Would you be our firm foundation, our true hope? We look to you now for all things. You are enough. We pray these things in and for your name.